Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And we'll read verses 12 to 19, but our focus today will be verses 15 to 19. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. There the word of Christ says this. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for you to increase our faith. Lord, knowing that without faith it is impossible to please you. Because we must believe that you exist and that you are a rewarder of those who earnestly seek you. But Lord, these rewards that we are striving for and looking to, Lord, they have to do with the life to come. With eternal joys and eternal rest. And that it is through many tribulations that we must come into them. Which requires our perseverance, Lord, our endurance, our holding fast firm until the end. So, Father, we pray that you would increase our faith. And that as a result of the increase of our faith, that you would grant to us, Lord, endurance in the things of God. That we would not grow weary in doing good, but that we would hold fast our confession and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So, Lord, use your word today, and may your spirit, Lord, build us up in our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, the purpose of this passage that we've been studying for the last several weeks is this exhortation to perseverance in the faith. We cannot forsake Christ. We cannot forsake our profession. We cannot give up on the Christian life, but we must continue in the things that we have learned firm until the end. This is the topic the Apostle has been addressing throughout chapter 3. He is urging us to consider Jesus Christ, who he is, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. He is the Apostle of God, being the one uniquely sent by God as his messenger to reveal to us with clarity and finality the very will of God. We learn who God is by seeing him in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For the Father has invested his authority in his Son, So that to see Jesus is to see God the Father. He and he alone can reveal God to us. He also stated at the beginning of the chapter that he is the high priest of our confession. Jesus is the only one who can serve as a mediator between God and man. He and he alone can reconcile us to God by offering a sacrifice that is able to atone for our sins. This being his own precious blood offered up on our behalf. Jesus executes these offices faithfully before God, and as a result, he has become the source of eternal salvation for all of God's people. 
He is the son who is over the household of God. And he is urging us to consider all of these things about Jesus Christ and see that salvation can be found in no one else. For he and he alone possesses these offices by the will of God. He and he alone is the son of God who is full of grace and truth. Well, if salvation can only be found in Christ, then what will happen to those who reject Christ? What will happen to those who turn away from him, who forsake him, those who have an evil, unbelieving heart that leads them to fall away from the living God, the living God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? What hope of salvation do they have? What hope do we have if we are counted among those who turn away from him? If a man rejects and turns away from the only source of salvation, then there no longer remains any sacrifice for his sins. And this is why he is urging us to consider who Jesus is, who God has made him, that he is the only source of salvation, and we must hold fast to him firm until the end. We must make sure that we are not false professors of Christ, superficial Christians who claim to follow Christ, but who turn away from him during the time of testing and tribulation. And the wilderness generation has been brought forward by the apostle as the example of an entire body of men who did not hold fast firm until the end. They had an evil, unbelieving heart. They were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They fell away from the living God, and they proved over and over again that they were false sons, disobedient children, Though they had the name Israel, they had association with the things of God, they were never truly partakers of Christ. They were not connected to the life-giving root, but only had some superficial connection to the things of God. And this became manifest because they did not hold fast, but rather they grumbled, they complained, they manifested what kind of heart they had over and over again. Though at the beginning, they made loud professions about their love and faithfulness to God. All of those who are true partakers of Christ will hold fast firm until the end. This is the proof that we truly have become partakers of him. And this is why he's urging us to endurance. Endurance in the faith is one of the good gifts produced in God's children by his Holy Spirit. It is sure evidence that we have truly become partakers of Christ. So this is what we've been dealing with. And this day we will finish this chapter, which he is going to revisit and highlight the problems with the wilderness generation. Right? He's bringing our attention to this group of people and specifically to their sin and the root cause of their sin so that we would not behave in the same way that they behaved, so that we would avoid this sin of unbelief. So let's turn to Hebrews 3, and we'll pick up in verse 15. There it says, While it is said, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Here he is reasserting this passage that he has already quoted from. This is a quote from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 8, where it says, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness. The psalmist is reflecting on the wilderness generation. Though when Psalm 95 was written, it was some 500 years after this original experience of the wilderness generation. 
The psalmist is bringing them forward as an example in his own day to urge his congregation to remain faithful to the Lord, to believe in the good promises of God and to obey what these promises require. Then in our passage, the apostle is bringing Psalm 95 forward, quoting it in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And immediately after that stating that we are God's house, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. He's bringing it forward for the necessity of endurance, quoting it in this way, regarding this wilderness generation as an example of those who did not endure in the things of God. Then in verses 12 to 14, he applies this example of unbelief to his own congregation, urging them to watch over their own hearts so that they maintain their faith firm until the end. And now he's bringing this passage up again so that he can emphasize certain truths in relationship to the wilderness generation. So he can highlight the example of sin in them for the purpose of instructing us. This is as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. They happened to them, they were written for us. And they're not written for us merely for our knowledge, merely so that we might have some knowledge of historical facts and things that happened in the past. They're written for what purpose? For instruction, to teach us, to instruct us in the faith, in the Christian life of what it is that God requires of us. This can only serve as instruction if we stand in a similar position to the wilderness generation. And this is the point that he's making. What happened to them? The sin that came upon them is not unique to that generation, but it is a sin that is common to man. It was today for them, meaning it was the day of salvation. It was the day of testing when they needed to prove their faithfulness to God. The apostle is telling his own generation that they also live in today. They are experiencing their time of testing. They are going through their trials as they are persecuted, being persecuted for their faith. They are facing their test just as the wilderness generation did. And then what is true for us? It is the time of our testing. This is the time of our trials. We are in the same position as the wilderness generation. We are living in today. From our conversion until our death, we must also pass through many tribulations until we enter into the kingdom of God. And while we go through these tribulations, what must we do? Hold fast. Hold fast to Christ. Hold firm to Christ and not forsake Him. Do not turn away from Him, but hold fast the boast of our hope firm until the end. And this is what makes the distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil, or the true believer and those who are superficial. The true believer goes through a trial and he perseveres through it. Though he may stumble, he may falter, he may have his doubts, it may be difficult for him, but ultimately he perseveres through the trial. He does not forsake Christ, he does not turn away. But those that are false, 
that are like the seed that fell among the rocks, when they face the same trial and temptation, what happens to them? They say, I didn't sign up for this. This is too difficult. It's too hard. What is this? I don't want anything to do with this. And then they walk away and you never see them again. Well, this is what happened to the wilderness generation. When it was today for them, they heard the voice of the Lord. God spoke to them through the prophet Moses. They heard the voice of God. Well, that also corresponds to the congregation of Psalm 95. That also corresponds to the congregation of Hebrews chapter 3. And that corresponds to our own situation as well. Because what are we reading today? The very word of God. And when we read the word of God, we are hearing the voice of the Lord. God is speaking to us. So all of us, the wilderness generation, Psalm 95 generation, Hebrews 3 generation, our own present generation, we are all standing in the exact same place, on the same plane, in the same situation as that wilderness generation. Every congregation, every man, every woman who has the word of God delivered unto them arrives at the exact same situation as the wilderness generation. And this is where we must learn from their bad example, from what they did. They sinned when the word of God came to them. They stood in the place that we now stand. So we must see what they did. Where did they fail? and not repeat the same sin as them. It was today for them. It is today for us. They heard the voice of the Lord. We are hearing the voice of the Lord. They hardened their heart and provoked God to wrath. So what is the lesson for us? What is the instruction that we are to learn from this example of their sin? Don't harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts as they did. When we hear the voice of the Lord speaking to us, when God is unfolding his great promises to us, when God is explaining to us and teaching us what he requires of us, what it means for us to be faithful to him, to live an obedient life to God, we cannot harden our hearts against the Lord and think that we will not provoke God to wrath. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They did it, and if it happened to them, God does not show partiality like some, but he is impartial in the way that he judges. And if they did it and it provoked him, well, if we do it, what will we do also? We will provoke God to wrath. They hardened their hearts, and so they provoked God. We harden our hearts, we will provoke God to wrath. And when God was provoked to wrath by them, he swore in his wrath that they would not enter into his rest. Well, we won't enter into his rest if we provoke God as they did. This is why he's repeating this passage that he's already introduced to reiterate its importance, to stress its urgency. And this is a great reminder for us that God's word is living and active. We might think that it is unnecessary to repeat this passage because he's already brought it up, right? That's what he did in Romans or in Hebrews chapter three, verses seven through 11. He's already quoted this passage, so why is he now bringing it back up again only four verses later? Back already in verse 15, he's restating what he has already said. And this is how some people think. 
They think, well, I've already read this passage, so I already know what it teaches. I don't need to read it again. Well, I've already heard a sermon on this topic, so I know all about it. I don't need to hear it explained to me. Again, I'm ready to move on. Right? I've exhausted the depth of Scripture on this passage or on this topic or on this or that. But is this ever the case in this present life? Right? We can read Psalm 95 today, and it will be a benefit for our faith and our soul. But we can read it again tomorrow, and it will still be a benefit for our faith and for our soul. And it may be that tomorrow God will open our eyes to understand some new aspect, some new implication of the Word of God concerning our salvation, concerning obedience, concerning the pathway of righteousness, something that we did not previously consider. This is the way it is with all of God's Word. We can feed our souls upon any passage of Scripture, later return to that very same passage and find it's still going to be nourishment for us. It will still be beneficial for our salvation. There's always meat on the bone whenever it comes to the Word of God that will feed the souls of men. And this is also true whether one be a babe in Christ, a new believer, or the most mature among us. It doesn't matter. They can both go to the same passage of Scripture and find nourishment for their souls, understanding depth for their souls. Because will we ever exhaust the depth of wisdom in any part or portion of the Word of God? It is impossible. It is impossible for us to do so. As it says in Psalm 119.96, I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. God's commandment is exceedingly broad, meaning there is a width to the wisdom of God that is unfathomable for us. And so we can come over and over and over to the Word of God, to any passage of the Word of God, and there is always nourishment for us. There is always some great truth for us to consider and to meditate on that will be beneficial for our salvation. Rightly is the Word of God called a treasury, filled with many precious jewels. And no matter how many times we may return to that treasury, we will always find precious truth from God that will make us rich in faith and rich in righteousness. And what is often lacking in us becoming rich in faith? It is not any deficiency in the Word of God. The deficiency lies where? It's always in us. It's either in our laziness, our sloth, our neglect of the Word of God, or because we lack faith. We lack faith. But this we must strive to overcome and go to the Word of Christ. Verse 16. Now he's going to highlight certain aspects concerning this wilderness generation. Verse 16. For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Here again, in verses 16 to 18, he's going to emphasize, draw in on these specific certain truths about the wilderness generation in order to display the enormity of their sin. Again, the focus here is on their sin and its consequences. And this is what we have to take to heart. This is what we must learn from. Here he says, who provoked him when they heard? The people provoked God. Now, when we provoke God, is that a good idea or a bad idea? Who's going to win on that? Are we going to be able to overcome God? Can we provoke God and escape his wrath? 
overcome God so that his wrath is not able to touch us. This is impossible. We should not provoke God to anger, to wrath, to pass judgment upon us, right, because of sin and wickedness. But that's what they did. And this provoking of God is not God being quick-tempered. It's not God being impulsive, flying off the handle. But God was completely justified in being aroused to wrath by the people. He was actually very long-suffering with them. He was very patient with them. He could have been provoked much earlier and pronounced judgment upon them, but God was patient with his people. However, there came a point because of their repeated sins and provocations of God that God did pronounce a judgment upon them. And what was the occasion of God being provoked by the people? Well, he says it's when they heard. When they heard, and what did they hear? They heard the voice of God. They heard the word of God, which is a very sad state. When the hearing of the word of God provokes God to wrath. Because what should the hearing of God's word among us do? It should teach us to be reconciled to God. It should teach us to have peace with God. It should be for our benefit and blessing. But in this case... The hearing of the word of God was not for their benefit, but rather it resulted in their condemnation. When the word of God was delivered to them, they did not listen. They did not receive it with a glad heart. They did not have humility and meekness when they heard the word of God. But this is the way that we should receive it. James chapter 1, James 1, verses 21 to 25. 21 to 25. There it says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, He has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. There, he says, we have to put aside all filthiness, all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. When the word of God is among us, when it is, as it says here, implanted, as it is there, cast among the various soils, What must be evident in us? What virtue is necessary for this seed to germinate and to produce good fruit within us? It's humility. We have to receive it with humility, which is a soft heart, a tender heart, a sensitive heart to the word of God. But what kind of heart did they have? They didn't have a tender, soft heart. They had a hard, obstinate, a rebellious heart that would not receive the implanted word with meekness and with humility. And this is a sad condition to be in. Because when they are receiving the word of God, this is evidence of God's grace and mercy to them. It is a kindness from God to receive the blessing of God, to have God's word proclaimed to us, is a very great privilege given to us by God. This is a blessing that many people in the history of the world have never experienced. And it is even a blessing in our own day that many people who exist today have never enjoyed, not to the measure that we have. How few people in the history of the world have access to the word of God like we do? 
we stand in a very privileged position. But these privileges and these blessings will be helpful to us only if we make use of them, only if we use them for their proper end. And what is the proper end of us hearing the voice of God? Faith. Faith and obedience. God's word among us should produce faith in us, and it should produce obedience to God. And when these things are lacking, when the people manifest an evil, unbelieving heart to the word of God, the blessing that they receive only serves to aggravate their sin so that it produces more guilt and more condemnation in them. Hardness to the word of God is a provoking sin unto the Lord. When a man despises the word of God, God will repay him to his face. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, stripe for stripe. If we despise God's word, then what will God do to us? He will despise us. He will be provoked to wrath. He will swear in his wrath that we will not enter into his rest. An example of this would be Matthew chapter 11. Now again, the purpose of all of this is not merely to terrify us, but rather it is to spur us on to what? Endurance, to love and good deeds. And then in the spurring on, what does it give us? Hope. It gives us comfort because it assures our hearts that we are indeed God's children and that we are indeed partakers of Christ and that we have a salvation. We have it waiting for us there in heavenly places. Matthew eleven twenty 20 to 24. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that had occurred in time... For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracle had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Right? In terms of blessings and privileges, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, they were exalted to heaven in the sense that they were raised above every city in the history of the world. For what other cities experienced such wonderful blessings from God? For Jesus to perform the majority or a greater part of his public ministry there among those people in those cities to see day after day the mighty works of God in the person of Christ, to see him face to face, to hear his gracious words. So in regards to blessings, they were exalted above the heavens. But what did these blessings bestow upon them? Did it result in repentance, in faith toward God? No, they had a hard heart. They had an unbelieving heart. So in terms of blessing, they're exalted to heaven. But in terms of condemnation, what will be true of them? You're going to descend all the way down to Hades or to hell. The guilt and the sin is greater than any other city because they did not believe. They did not repent of their sin. They did not make use of their great privileges. 
making them even worse than such notorious cities as Tyre and Sidon and even the city of Sodom. The blessing of God did not produce faith and obedience, but rather unbelief, so that their sin was aggravated in this way, manifesting an even greater evil, unbelieving heart, even greater than those of Sodom and Gomorrah, just like the wilderness generation so many years before, who, when they heard the voice of God, they provoked God when they heard. They provoked Him. And again, who did this? Notice again what it says in verse 16. Did not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? It was that generation of men who saw and experienced the fulfillment of God's promises. The promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these promises were fulfilled in the wilderness generation. Several generations of Abraham's descendants lived and died during the 400 years of bondage in the land of Egypt. They knew about the promises of God. They knew what God had told to Abraham. They knew that God had promised to give them their own land, to deliver them from the house of bondage, but they did not live to see these promises fulfilled. But this wilderness generation, they saw it all. They lived through it. They experienced it. They saw it with their own eyes. They had the word of God confirmed to them, not only in the form of promise, but also in the form of fulfillment. What God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob literally unfolded before their very eyes. They saw all of the miracles that God performed against the Egyptians, the ten plagues that God brought upon them. They saw that God delivered them from Egypt. They saw the distinction that God made between them and the Egyptians. They were there when they plundered the Egyptians and took all of their possessions. They walked out of Egypt safely, right, without being harassed. And then when their enemies came against them, they saw God part the Red Sea and they walked through on dry ground and then the sea consumed all of their enemies. And then they went to Mount Sinai and on their way, God provided water for them out of the rock. God fed them with bread that came down out of heaven. And then there at Sinai, they saw on the mountain this theophany, this revelation of God, and they heard the voice of the Lord speaking to them out of the fire. All of these privileges were given to them. They saw all of this, and yet in spite of all of God's works for their benefits, they refused to believe in Him. They still had an evil, unbelieving heart, and every time they faced the slightest obstacle, the least bit of discomfort, what did they do? They began to murmur, to complain, to want to kill Moses, to say it was better for us in Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. Why did you bring us out here? Every step along the way, this is what they did over and over again. Everything about their experience is attesting to them of the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises, and yet they would not believe. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 4, 32 to 40. Deuteronomy 4, verse 32 says, Indeed, ask, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, 
Has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of fire as you heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to go and take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know the Lord. He is God, and there is no other besides him. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you. And on the earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words from the midst of the fire. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his mighty power. Driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you. To bring you in and give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven and above and on the earth below, and there is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Here, he is recounting to them the many privileges that they have. He says, when has this ever happened? in the history of the world. Go and find out. Has it ever been said that a God went and took a nation from within another nation? That a people heard God speak from the midst of the fire and live? God did all of these things for you, for your benefit, showing his love for you, that he chose you. He gave these promises to your fathers. He did all of these things for you, all of these privileges and blessings. And who was the one that led them out of Egypt? It was Moses who led them, a preeminent servant of God, who already has been stated in the book of Hebrews that Moses was faithful in all of God's house, faithful as a servant. They had a faithful teacher and a good example to follow right in front of their eyes. Notice what it says of Moses in Numbers 12, verses 1 to 9. Notice how God commends this man. How he speaks so highly of him. What a preeminent servant of God he was. And he was their shepherd. Their primary teacher and pastor was Moses. Romans 12, verses 1 to 9. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they both came forward, he said, Hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings, and he beholds the very form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. There, Moses is stated to be a humble man, 
more humble than any man on the face of the earth. In regards to humility, this virtue is most clearly seen in relationship to the Word of God. Believing, receiving, relying, obeying the voice of the Lord. This is the mark of humility in men. When they do not depend on their own wisdom, their own understanding, but they cast themselves and rely solely on the Lord. And this humility was displayed in them consistently in the servant Moses. He was a consistent behavior, a consistent example, set before them as an example of a man of faith, of how they should respond when they heard the voice of the Lord. How did Moses respond when he heard the voice of the Lord? He had a soft heart. He obeyed. He believed, right? This is what he did. And doesn't it say in Luke 6.40 that a pupil is not above his teacher? But everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's the way it's supposed to work. What is typical and common in the teacher-pupil relationship is that the pupil becomes like the teacher. Well, in terms of Moses and the congregation, who's the teacher and who are the pupils? Moses is the teacher and they are the pupils. But did they become like their teacher? Did they follow his example and walk in his footsteps? No, they didn't, but they resisted and they rebelled. They were not fully trained, but they were rebellious. Now, the point that he's making here is that everything they needed to experience the fulfillment of God's promise in terms of privileges, in terms of example, in terms of instruction, all of it was given to them. Nothing was lacking. Yet in spite of all the goodness of God, they refused to believe. They had an evil, unbelieving heart. And in our case, everything we need for life and godliness, we have right before us. So if we fail to enter into that rest, whose fault is it? It is our own fault. It is because of an evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 17. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? There it says, God was angry with them for 40 years. 40 years. Again, this is not unjustified. God's not holding some grudge against them. He was justly, righteously angry with them for 40 years. Now, why was God angry with them for 40 years? Hebrews 3 verse 10. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. They always go astray. Every time, every day they go astray in their heart. They do not know the ways of God. And this was consistent of them for 40 years. With that generation, therefore, God was justly angry with them. His anger was aroused against them. This is the condition they came under. And what brought them into this miserable state? Well, he says, what it, was it not those who sinned? Sin. Sin is what brought them into this state of misery. And if we do not learn anything else today, this truth must be impressed upon our hearts, upon our minds at all times. It is sin and sin alone that brings about God's displeasure. This is what provokes God to wrath. A man of sin who is obstinate in his rebellion against God 
makes God into his enemy. Sin and sin alone is the object of God's displeasure in his people. That a man is young or old is of no consequence. That he is tall, that he is short, that he has a noble birth, that he has a common birth, that he is rich or that he is poor, male or female, Jew or Gentile, none of these distinctions matter to God. All that matters is what? What is it that brings about God's displeasure within us? It is sin. God doesn't care if a man is poor, that if a man is common. He does not care if a man does not possess exceptional talents and abilities. God will not reject a man because of any of these things. What causes God to reject a man, to have wrath against a man, to be displeased with a man, is the presence of sin in that man. Isaiah 59. Isaiah chapter 59 says such that it is our sin that makes a separation between us and our God. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It is sin that makes a separation, and we must hate sin as God hates sin. And when we find sin in ourselves, we must be displeased with our own sin. We must be broken over our sin, humbled over our sin, and cry out to God for deliverance, which is what we must understand as well. Yes, it is sin that brings about displeasure in the sight of God. But what makes men and women like you and me, right? Men and women who still have sin, right? We're born in sin and iniquity in our natural state, but even in our converted state, even as Christians, do we not still have the flesh within us? Do we not still have our daily sins? So what is it that can make us acceptable in the sight of God? If sin brings displeasure, then what is it that makes us acceptable? Is it our own works? Is it our own righteousness? Is it our own merits and our best efforts to please God that can make us pleasing in His sight? Of course not. Because what are our good efforts and our best deeds? Nothing but filth in the sight of God. It is only the precious blood of Jesus Christ who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Only he is pleasing in the sight of God. And when we are partakers of Christ, when our life is hidden in Christ, then God is pleased with us as well. Isn't that what God the Father said concerning his Son? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He can't say that about you and me in our natural state. He cannot say that about any man in the state of sin. But he can say that about you and us insofar as we are hidden in Christ. That's the whole point he's making here. We are partakers of Christ. That's the basis of our salvation. That is the basis of our being acceptable in the sight of God. They were not partakers of Christ. And this was manifested in their obstinate, rebellious nature of sin. Unrepentant in their sin. And as a result... He said their bodies fell in the wilderness. This was God's judgment against their sin. They died 
one by one, until every last one of that generation fell in the wilderness. Their dead bodies scattered to and fro over that desolate land as an example of the punishment of eternal fire. All of them fell except who? Except two men, Joshua and Caleb. And wouldn't it have been something? In that next generation, the ones that were under 20 years of age, those who did enter in and take possession of the promised land, amongst all of those people, there were two old men, Joshua and Caleb. And they were an example of what? Those who had true faith. They didn't have an evil, unbelieving heart that led them to fall away from the living God. They were men of true faith. And so they serve as an example, even to us today, that we need to follow in their example and reject the wilderness generation. All of this is given to us to teach us that the soul who sins shall surely die. And the wages of sin is death. And if we sin the same way that they sinned, then we will fall in the same way that they fell. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11 says, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Their falling in the wilderness is a picture, an example of the eternal falling into condemnation into the lake of fire so we don't want to have unbelief as they did and fall in the same way that they fell verse 18 to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient here they provoked God he was angry with them and as a result he swore that they would not enter his rest they perished in their sin in the wilderness according to the oath of God pronounced against them and here why Why did God swear that they would not enter his rest? Disobedience. He says they were disobedient to God's commandment. Entering into the promised land required them to be faithful to God. To enter into that land and to take possession of it through warfare. True faith was necessary. And true faith, according to James chapter 2, always manifests itself with what? with good deeds, with obedience to God. True faith manifesting itself in faithfulness to God. But faith without works or faith without faithfulness is a dead and useless faith. And their faith was going to be tested, it was going to be proven through warfare, through their obedience to go in and take possession of the land. In this warfare that they had to wage to take the land. Now, when they were to engage in this warfare, were they fighting on their own strength through their own power? No, of course not. God gave them his assurances that he would be with them, that he would fight for them, and he would fight through them, but not without them. They had to go in and do it. They had to prove their faithfulness in this way. They had to show that they trusted in God, that God would give them what he had promised. But they were disobedient to the command to enter and take possession of the land of Canaan by warfare. And this disobedience flowed from their heart of unbelief. They did not believe that God had the power to give them that land. That God had the power to fulfill the promises that he had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though up to this point, all of these things had been proven over and over and over and over again, yet they still refused to believe. Verse 19, 
So we see, here he's summing it all up in a nice, neat package for us, okay? He knows that we are simpletons, right? That we can't put two and two together. So he's going to put it all together for us. 19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now we have to ask, which is it? Did they fail to enter because of disobedience? Or did they fail to enter because of unbelief? And the answer is, they are one in the same. The root is unbelief, but whenever someone has unbelief regarding the nature of God and the promises of God, this unbelief will always manifest itself in open rebellion against the Lord, in disobedience to God's command. The root and the fruit are always in unison together. The root is unbelief and the fruit is disobedience. And this is also true in the positive sense. Faith and obedience are inseparable. And so also unbelief and disobedience are inseparable. Where faith is found, there will be found obedience to God's command. But where there is unbelief, there will necessarily be found disobedience to God's command. And the promises of God always require faithfulness from man. They require our obedience to the commands associated with the promise. This is the outflow of our belief in the promises of God. And where there is true faith in God's promises, which is ultimately faith in the God who gave those promises. Right? That is where our faith resides. It is in the trustworthiness of God. That faith will overcome whatever obstacle, whatever hindrance might appear that would prevent the promise from being fulfilled. Faith will always be victorious over whatever would keep the promise from coming into fulfillment. And these are the tests, the trials, the tribulations. God tries our faith by bringing obstacles that appear to make the fulfillment of his promise impossible. Things that seem to mitigate against the fulfillment of God's word. And when those who have true faith encounter such obstacles... What do they do? They overcome. They trust God, even if it means that God has to do a miracle. They will entrust themselves to God and know that God will do it because he has sworn to do it. And that's all that they need. They don't need anything else. They don't even need a miracle from God. If they have it in the word of God, by the oath of God, by the promise of God, then because they know who God is, his character and nature, and they know that he cannot break his word, then that's all that they need. It is a sure uncertainty for them. An example, Romans 4.16. Romans 4.16. Abraham is a good example. The wilderness generation is a bad example. We learn from the good and from the bad. Romans 4.16-21. to 21. It says, For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations, according to what had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, 
he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Here, in this case, Abraham and Sarah's age and her barrenness, the deadness of her womb. These two realities appear to make the fulfillment of God's promises impossible. Because the promise given to Abraham necessitated, it required him and Sarah having a son together, having a child. But he is 100 years old and she's 90, and she is a barren woman, right? Her womb is dead and she has never born any children. These were obstacles, hindrances to faith. And yet, in spite of the impossibility of God's promises being filled, it says that he did not waver in unbelief, but rather he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God had the power to do what he had promised. Also, later on in Genesis chapter 22, later on in the story of Abraham, whenever he was told to offer up his son Isaac on the altar, right? Does not the death of Isaac provide a fairly substantial obstacle to the fulfillment of God's promise? That the Christ would come through his offspring, through the son of promise, through Isaac, when Isaac does not yet himself, he's not married and he has no children. So how can God fulfill this promise if his son is dead? Yet when he faced that obstacle, he did not waver in unbelief. And he believed, according to Hebrews chapter 11, that if necessary, God would even raise him from the dead in order to fulfill his promise. Abraham's true, sincere faith was manifested in his obedience to God. Whenever God tested him and expected him to obey in accordance with his promise in offering up his son, he does not hesitate. He doesn't balk against it. He doesn't murmur and complain. He doesn't protest against God. He continued trusting in the Lord to fulfill his promise because he knew who God was and he knew what God had sworn to him. He knew that God could not break his oath. He had this assurance of God's promise, so he knew whatever it would take for God to fulfill it, God had the power to do so, even if it took miracles to accomplish it, which it did. His faith in the promise resulted in his continual obedience to God's commandments. Contrast that with the wilderness generation. They also had the promise of God delivered to them. They also said that they believed it, but they didn't really. God had promised to deliver them from Egypt and to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land of Canaan. This is what God swore that he would do for them. Numbers 13. Numbers chapter 13. Notice what they do when their faith is put to the test. Numbers 13, verse 25. It says, When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, 
We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Notice that. Caleb's faith. It doesn't matter to him how big the people are. It doesn't matter how fortified their cities are. It doesn't matter. We can go. We can do it. We can overcome it. Because who's fighting for us? God is fighting on our side, so we have nothing to fear. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they espied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in, spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There we also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, so we were in their sight. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? This is what an evil, unbelieving heart looks like. Okay. So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation and the sons of Israel. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Here, that's a believing heart. You see the difference? But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meaning to all the sons of Israel. They would have been happy to take possession of the land if God just miraculously destroyed all the inhabitants. If the land was empty, then it would be easy, right? All we have to do is walk in and we don't have to fight and there's no obstacles there. This is what God did for them in Egypt. They didn't have to lift a finger to fight against the Egyptians. God did everything for them. But now in the land of Canaan, God is still going to fight for them and he's going to be the one that does it, but he expects them to do their part as well. He expects them to exercise their faith. He expects them to go in and fight and God is going to fight in them and through them to take possession of the promise, they had to exercise their faith. And all the big talk at Mount Sinai when they said, all that the Lord says, this we will do, all that proved to be utterly worthless. They had to prove the validity of their faith by going into the land and fighting against a very mighty people. 
and it would not be easy. It would be through many tribulations, through much warfare, that they would take possession of the land. Many battles would have to be fought, and the enemies were very great. And there would be fear, there would be doubts, there would be trepidation. But all of these things they had to overcome. And what is the means to overcoming these things? It is our faith that overcomes the world. Our faith in the promises of God and in the God who gave those promises. Abraham, he faced obstacles and he didn't waver in unbelief. He was fully convinced that God had the power to do what he had promised. Caleb and Joshua, they were right there with the rest of them. They saw the exact same thing that the other 10 spies saw, but they were strong in faith. They did not waver in unbelief. They were fully convinced that God had the power to fulfill his word. And that's why they're telling them, the Lord is with us. They said, don't fear them. That's what we read last time in verse 13. Encourage one another day by day while it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what we need to be doing to one another. When we start faltering, when one of us is weak, when one of us begins to stumble and stammer here and there, then we need to go to our brothers and encourage them and say, we can do it. The Lord is with us. He's on our side. He will give us the strength. He will help us to endure and overcome. Why should we fear these people? Yes, they may be giants. They may have fortified cities. They may be very strong. But are they stronger than the Lord our God? Are they more powerful than the Lord our God? We just witnessed all of his miracles in Egypt. So why would we doubt his power and strength to give us this land? The rest were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They wavered in unbelief because they had an evil, unbelieving heart. They were not convinced that God had the power to do what he had promised. They doubted the goodness of God. Why did God bring us up out of, out of Egypt? He brought us up here to kill us, is what they believe so that our children and our wives would become plunder for these people. They didn't believe in his goodness, nor do they believe in his power. The people are too strong, they said. The people are too mighty. We cannot overcome them. It would be better for us to have died in Egypt or to have died in the wilderness than to go and have our wives and children become plunder. They believed the people of the land and the false gods of the people of the land had more power than the Lord their God, the true living God. You see, they're falling away from the living God. Even though God had just manifested his power and might by destroying the Egyptians. And in terms of nations, which nation is more powerful, the Egyptians or the Canaanites? The Egyptians are more powerful. So the bigger enemy, God defeated without them, all on their behalf. And now the lesser enemy, God expects them to go and he's going to fight through them, but they are unwilling to go. No faith in the Lord no faith in his promises, therefore no obedience to God. And this is why God said, they will not enter my rest because of their unbelief. Unbelief in the promises of God manifesting itself by disobedience to his command. And so we must ask ourselves, do we believe in the promises of God? Do we believe that God can save us from our sins and rescue us from every evil thing? Do we believe that God can deliver us from all of our enemies? Do we believe that he can safely bring us into his heavenly kingdom? Do we believe 
that the pathway of righteousness that God sets before us is a better pathway than the pathway of sin that the world is pursuing? And are our enemies not strong and mighty as well? For we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against worldly forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. It says in Ephesians 6, 12. So how will any of us make it safely into the promised rest of God? Seeing that our enemies are so great, seeing that they are so numerous, seeing that we are so weak and they are so strong. There are so many obstacles that lie in the way. So where is our hope found? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Our hope rests in God. That's where it has to be. And God can do whatever he wants. He is not lacking in power to deliver his people from their sins, to save us from death, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. 2 Timothy 4.18 We must entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing what is right. And we cannot doubt his love, his goodness, his faithfulness, nor the certainty of his promises for our good, especially in times of trials and tribulations. Even if obstacles arise, even if persecution arises, even if we are mocked and ridiculed and our property is plundered and we are imprisoned, or even if we are killed for our faith, we must be like our father Abraham. He did not waver in unbelief regarding the promise of God, but grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, fully convinced that God had the power to do what he had promised. Remember the steadfastness of Job, and this is the way that we must live. They trusted in the Lord, they remained faithful to him, and God delivered them from all of their enemies, from every evil thing. And so we too must be faithful to the Lord. We must trust in him and remain faithful to Christ. And for how long must we do this? To the very end, firm until the end, holding fast our hope and the boast of our confession, firm until the end. So while it is today, we must press on. We must endure through many tribulations and enter into the kingdom of God and entrust ourselves to God and know that we are not fighting this battle on our own. We are not waging the warfare on our own. We are not walking the Christian life on our own. But through whose strength are we able to do this? Only through his strength. Only through his strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, so grateful for, Lord, the many manifestations of your kindness and your goodness. Lord, that you have given to us, your people. Lord, you have given your very word to us. And we have it, Lord, before us, completed from Genesis to Revelation. Lord, every word of God confirmed to us, all scripture given to us by you that is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, everything that we need, all that we need to know in order to be reconciled to you, Lord, in order to have life in godliness, Lord, you have graciously provided. And Lord, we pray that not only these outward blessings, 
Lord, that are necessary for our salvation. Lord, the hearing of your word. But Lord, we pray as well that the inward blessing that is also necessary, Lord, the work of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give that to us as well. That Lord, when we hear your voice, that it would not fall upon on the, on the pathway or upon the rocky soil or there among the thorns, but that, Lord, your word would fall in our hearts, that it would be implanted, Lord, in good soil, and that it would bring forth life and yield much fruit within us. But, Lord, we confess and know that, Lord, in our natural state, all of our hearts are, are as hard as stone, Lord, like flint, and there is nothing good there. Lord, there is not good soil there so that the word of God might be implanted within us and that it might yield good fruit. But rather, there is only a desolation, Lord, a wilderness, a barren wasteland, Lord, void of any life, of any goodness. Lord, only you can give life to those who are dead. Lord, only you can transfer or transform, Lord, this barren wilderness into an oasis, Lord, into a place that is thriving and that is yielding much life and much good fruit. And Lord, this requires your Holy Spirit taking up his dwelling place within us. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant to your Spirit, Lord, that you would grant more and more of his work within us, that the Spirit would move in us in such a way Lord, that our life would yield to his leading, to his guiding, and that he would work within us and sanctify us, Lord, and purify us of all unrighteousness. Lord, we ask that you conform us to the very image of Christ. Lord, that his life would be evident within us. And that, Lord, this life of Christ would be manifested so clearly when we hear the voice of God. For we know that when your son heard your voice, He always did what was pleasing in your sight. So, Lord, may the same be true of us. Lord, may we be pleasing in your sight. And, Lord, may we yield to you the good fruits of obedience and perseverance, Lord, whenever we hear the word of God. Father, we thank you as well that we have such an advocate in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, knowing that if you should mark our iniquities, that none of us could stand. Lord, even as... Christians, Lord, we fail so many times, Lord, in so many ways, each and every day, that if our standing before you was ever based upon our own obedience, Lord, we would all be odious in your sight. And so, Father, we thank you that our standing before you and our acceptance in your sight is not based upon any works that we have done in righteousness. Lord, nothing that we have done before our conversion and nothing that we do after our conversion will ever make us pleasing in your sight, but only your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, standing as our mediator, as our advocate, only when we have been hidden in him, Lord, can we be made right in your sight. And so, Father, we pray that we would always look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would look to the very heavens where our Savior is there, sitting at your right hand interceding on our behalf. And Lord, we pray that you give us confidence, that you give us assurance and hope. Lord, that we are your children and that you do love us and that this salvation that you have begun in us, Lord, that you will bring it to perfection 
on the day of Christ. So, Lord, grant to us all that we need. Lord, give us your grace and mercy. We need your strength. For, Lord, we are weak, but you are strong. And, Lord, we pray that whatever enemies we face and whatever obstacles and trials and tribulations, Lord, that come into our path, Father, we pray that you would give us the strength and the grace that we need to overcome them and that you would give to us an even greater and greater faith. So, Lord, we pray that you would keep us, Lord, in your arms, keep us safe and secure, and that we might persevere firm until the end. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.